Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am in awe today, everybody, because I normally do all of my podcasts and my interviews in my office, and I am on the Jim Henson lot, as I call it, in the back rooms of several music studios, and I'm sitting here with Randy Jackson. Before I get into the cold open, I just want to tell you, you know, when you see on television or a documentary, you see one of those boards where people are moving buttons around? I'm at one of these music mixing boards. It's like the size of Rhode Island, okay? It's got everything here that can be now operated from your iPhone. So it's pretty much probably obsolete by now. But <laughs> but I'm sitting across from Randy. Before I start, I want to thank you so much, everybody. You guys have been amazing. I don't even know what to say. I can't even do this without you guys, your comments, your reviews, your everything you've done to make this podcast as big as it's been. It has been incredible, and thank you so, so much. And as I look at my guest today, Randy Jackson, I look at him and, and I say, it's a shame he has no charisma. It's unbelievable. <laughs> the guy is like the most charismatic person in the world. You can't even believe it. He walks into the room, and you just feel okay. You know when you walk into a room and somebody walks in, the hair on the back of your neck stands up? But this guy, it's just calm, relaxed. Even I've watched clips of him when he's like, reviewing people on the show American Idol and he's got his arms folded he's still huggable and lovable and my feeling is huggable and lovable always wins the race but as I look at you I can't help but think of your career and how it relates to something that I remember and I don't know why this is coming to me 
but May 14th, 1988, Madison Square Garden. And that was one of the first concerts I ever got to go to. And somebody invited me with a press pass to see the 40th anniversary of Atlantic Records. And I was witness and privy to seeing everyone from the Rascals to Iron Butterfly to Genesis to Yes to Foreigner, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And at the end of the show, I witnessed something that really, really struck me. And as I sit across from you, I think of you because I think of what it takes to really move people. And there were a lot of artists on that show that have sold millions and millions of records. And it was almost like an all-star team there that night of any sport, but in music. But it's true to form in any all-star game. There's always one player that just stands out in that game. And in this particular night, I'll never forget, I heard the whisperings that John Bonham's son was going to be there playing drums for Led Zeppelin. But I wasn't sure. Nobody knew what was going to happen and how it happened or what was going to take place. And all the artists went on, got wonderful ovations and really nice response. But when Led Zeppelin was introduced and Jimmy Page walked out, it was like a jack-in-the-box. Everybody just to their feet immediately. And what happened then in that performance, and as they finished with one of the greatest songs of all time, Stairway to Heaven, there wasn't a dry eye in the place, and people were just emotionally spent standing there because they were seeing an artist that changed the face of how they thought about music, changed their perception of what it was like to follow something and mean something and speak to a generation. And when I look at you, without embarrassing you, for 12 years plus a 13th year as a consultant on American Idol, you're the longest-running judge in history, and you were there, and you were a part of a show an amazing, integral, important part of the show that changed the face of how I viewed music and how the country viewed music and the world viewed music. And so when I think of you on the show, I think of that moment where Jimmy Page walked out and the entire crowd stood up and so many people that you've launched where as they go on tour all around the country selling millions and millions of records. People stand for them. And Jimmy Page, just like all those people, had to start somewhere with nothing. Just like all of those other people on the show started with nothing. And frankly, just how Randy Jackson started with nothing in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And so if I have any message to anybody out there, wherever you are in the world... Don't ever think you have to be from a big town. Don't ever think that you have to have this huge manager or huge agent or you have to have this big team behind you. All you have to have is what Jimmy Page and Randy Jackson have, which is talent and undeniability and a skill set that blows people away. Here we 
Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with buried cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hard. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And I am going to introduce my guest today, who it's an honor to sit across. And this is going to be one of the greatest podcasts that I've ever done. I can feel it. And it's going to be one of the greatest interviews. Randy Jackson is a musician, music producer, entrepreneur, and television personality. He grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he began playing bass guitar at 13. By the early 80s, he was working his way through the jazz fusion scene, playing bass guitar for French jazz violinist Jean-Luc Ponty. He progressed musically into the pop and R&B world, recording, producing, or touring with the likes of Smokey Robinson, Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, NSYNC, Mariah Carey, and Madonna. He was a session musician for Journey on their album Raised on Radio and performed with other rock acts, including Bon Jovi, Billy Joel, Keith Richards, and Carlos Santana. In 1990, he became a staff producer at Columbia Records, eventually making the rare transition to senior vice president of A&R. How many people can say that? After nine years at Columbia, he moved to MCA Records as a senior vice president of A&R. In 2002, Jackson made the risky jump to television to be a panel judge on a new Fox reality show that was passed on by every major network in the world called American Idol, along with co-judges Simon Cowell, Paul Abdul, and host Ryan Seacrest. Debuting in the summer of 2002, American Idol was a smash success and was the number one rated show in the 2003-2004 season and remained number one for an unprecedented eight seasons. Jackson remained on the show as a judge throughout 12 seasons and a consultant on a 13th season. And the franchise spawned, get this everybody, 345 Billboard chart-topping songs in its first 10 years. The show remains one of the most popular in the history of television, and the show's performing alumni have sold over 59 million records and 120 million singles or downloads in the United States alone. Incredible. In 2008, Jackson executive produced MTV's America's Best Dance Crew and hosted a syndicated radio program called Randy Jackson's Hit List. He has developed his own line of eyewear, a watch brand, and a line of custom guitars. He's taught music business classes at UCLA. He's written two best-selling books and has over a thousand gold and platinum plaques bearing his name with collective sales of over 200 million copies. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, leaning on a soundboard, Randy Jackson. Wow, that's a lot, man. That's crazy. Wow. I should have left the room. Come on. <laughs> There's so much more that I could have mentioned. Wow, thank you. I mean, my God. Wow, Barry. 
I mean, just to be mentioned in the same sentence as the great Jimmy Page is just incredible. Thank you, man. I mean, you know, Zeppelin's one of my favorite bands of all time. I mean, I kind of grew up on them and loved them and uh, never saw them live. But I've seen Woodstock many, many, many times, all hours. Um, you know, I say to people always, if I ever get depressed, which is not that often, because uh, I try to do a lot of spiritual uh, things, uh, meditation and things to help myself and keep myself on point. But I watch Woodstock and I go, wow, we still got a lot of work to do. Because to me, it was still the greatest in history. The musicians there, from Zeppelin to Sly and the Family Stone to Country Joe and the Fit, I mean, everybody there was so different, so incredible, and so unique. Santana, I mean, I just, I, I, I sit there and watch it still to this day with my mouth open like, wow. I just can't believe the music was that good and that incredible. And it set the tone for where we are today musically, and we still are not there where they were. This is what blows me away when I watch that. I think of it differently than you do, like I alluded to in the hallway before. We're talking about practice. You guys are talking to me about practice. Right. Have you seen me in a game? Right. We're talking about practice. Right. Well, Alan Iverson, how many rings have you won? Right. Zero, but we're talking about practice. Right. And this is what blows me away about Woodstock. I would bet that every one of those artists on that show were taking some kind of drug or psychedelic <laughs> that were taking them out of their game. I would bet any amount of money that those people were so fucked up and so hung over on so many occasions that they never practiced right. as hard as some of the artists today. Yet, even as fucked up as they were and as unpracticed as they were, they're better than most of the artists today and they weren't even functioning. Well, here's the thing. You have to kind of be born with it, don't you? So the Malcolm Gladwell thing says, oh, 10,000 hours. Okay, that's cool if you want to just be in the game. If you want to be a leader, and what I like about Woodstock, all those people were leaders. They were not followers. Zeppelin followed no one. Hendrix followed no one. They were leaders. This was not a following kind of thing. Oh, so-and-so's got a hit. Let me do something like that. No, that's what we are now. What we are now is I hear people complain every day about the radio. Everything on the radio sounds the same. All the hip-hop sounds the same. All the pop stuff sounds the same. All the alternative rock, it all sounds the same. Well, back then, those guys weren't thinking that way at all. And I got to say, whatever they were doing, however it was, it all helped because I truly believe stars are born. Those guys were born with it. That singer, that great singer in Led Zeppelin was born with that talent. Yes, you used the 10,000 hours to nurture it and make it better, but that was born. Michael Jackson was born with that greatness. So... The thing with Idol, with all the kids that won that have gone on and done well, those ones that have won and gone on and done well, when we first saw them, we noticed they were born with that greatness. Let's see if we can help to just nurture it so the world sees it. It's a different thing than practicing all the time and not be born with that greatness. You still can be good, and in the game, you won't be one of the Iversons or the LeBrons or now... Uh, the the Splash Boys now with Golden State. You won't be that, but, you know, you'll be in the game, you'll be playing, and you'll still make money and have a good life. 
yeah, you'll have a good life. But as you know, you could have a good life too. But you are an example of what you just said. You are a leader of men and women. I've done a lot of research on you. <laughs> and one of the biggest things that you thought about early on in your career was how could I be a leader of men and women? What could I do to lead and not be a worker, be a follower? Well, I grew up in the lovable South of Louisiana, and authenticity was the big word there. So are you doing what you feel? Are you doing what you're passionate about? Are you doing what you absolutely love? If you could do nothing else, would you still be doing this? If you could do everything else, would you still be doing this? One of my favorite questions to ask anybody, it doesn't matter if it's at a Wendy's with a square hamburger or if it's at the Four Seasons, if you had all the money in the world and the health of yourself and your family, but you had to go to work every day for eight hours a day, what would you be doing? And my guess is you'd be doing the same thing. I'd still be doing the same thing. Look, But the same thing for you is... Today I do about 17 different things because I truly believe that, you know, you and I are around the same age, 30, 35. Oh, so, God yeah. bless you. I've <laughs> so, just gotten down on my knees. <laughs> well, no, listen, I think that back in the day you had to really focus, right? If you have one thing going on in your life, in your world, you know, parents would say, look, you got to really concentrate and focus on one thing. I think that the world has moved so fast today and the digital revolution has really forced the world into a different place. So I think you got to have a couple, two, three hustles going on. Uh, you never know when one's going to come in. If you want a career in the music business today... Wow, you got to have really thick skin. You always had to have it. And you got to have an utmost amount of patience and not be looking to get rich quick, if ever. One of the fascinating things about anything in the world, doesn't matter comedy, like you could see 20-hour specials come out in one year and maybe three people break. Right. And people wonder, well, how come I didn't break? What happened? I had an hour special. I was great. Um if you had to look at the list of winners that have won on American Idol that you were there for, you were there from the audition process on, right? has it all shaken out the way you thought it would? Or tell me somebody who surprised you who hasn't really moved the needle as much as you thought they would. And tell me somebody who moved the needle more than maybe you thought they might have. Uh, for me... Um it's shaken out exactly the way that I thought it was as soon as I saw that person audition. Um, Every time. As I say, well, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. So for me, you cannot have, and not me boasting about myself because I never really do that, but you Until can't have today. sat in the studio. No, I'm saying you can't no, have sat gonna... in the studio with Whitney, Mariah, Aretha, Dylan, Springsteen, Billy Joel, Elton John, John Fogarty, uh, the Bon Jovi boys, the Journey boys, the foreigner guy. You can't have been around all of that greatness. The Smokey Robinsons, the Sam Moores from Sam and Dave, uh, the B.B. Kings, God rest his soul. Uh, all of the early rhythm and blues. I mean, the Ernie Cato from the, I mean, all the, you can't have sat around with all those guys and all those people and not sponged off a little bit of wisdom. So what they all showed me is what I said to you earlier. That one right there is born with a natural gift. If somebody can figure out a way to expose it to the rest of the public so they see it, I can see it, but I'm like the doctor with the trained eye because the music is all I do. 
one of the big things that I do. So music, TV, film, all of that. So I can see it because I can spot it right away. Somebody else may not quite see it right away, but if you can shift it enough, they go, whoa, the dog was right, man. That girl's incredible. That guy's incredible. So that I saw early on. I saw it was going to happen with Jennifer Hudson. I saw it was going to happen with Carrie Underwood, who's doing the CMAs tonight. I saw it was going to happen with uh, Kelly Clarkson. I saw what was going to happen with Adam Lambert. All of those ones, even Fantasia, you saw all the ones, Ruben, I mean, Clay, all of those, the ones that either won or runner-up or whatever, you could see almost the trajectory. So when they would walk in the door, for me, there would be a ticker tape that would run down by their face, and I would go, huh, so all these boxes have appeared. I wonder which ones are going to come true. I'm going to pick, dot, 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 dot. And they sing, and I go, right, got it. I've been doing it a long time, and I did it for myself, don't forget. Being in this building. and The great Henson Studios, you're in the mix room. This is the mix room. I think Brendan O'Brien's across the hall. I don't know what it is, but it just comes to me. You are, I believe you're represented by Brillstein Partners. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and Bernie Brillstein, one of the last. One of the greatest. One of the, like, one of the greatest managers of all time. One of the last meetings I had with him before he passed away. This is where it's strange the way you say this because in music, I guess, I have a lot of opinions about this, but I'm not entrenched in your world. (laughs) I always say if you're in music, it's like you could be, you could get standing ovations every night in Peoria, Illinois, and you may never make it. But if you're a stand-up comedian and you're in a bathroom in Taiwan and getting a standing ovation there, they will find you, bring you out to Hollywood, and you will have a deal, and you will make it. <laughs> There's just something about music that's so competitive. But Bernie Brillstein said, I said, how many geniuses did you represent? And he said, only one. I said, how is that possible? You know, you represented Belushi and Gilda and all these people. One genius, Jim Henson. So, for, And we're here. And we're here. And... I know you're humble, and I know you won't call yourself a genius, but considering that your name is on about a thousand, a thousand, everybody, gold or platinum records, I'll just gesture to call you a genius and then ask you, you know, you've been with so many artists throughout your career and you've worked with so many people. Who would your Mount Rushmore of musical artists be? I didn't even know if I could have one. I mean, you know, I'm kind of um, a music baby. I mean, one of the great other things about the South is you get exposed to everything. Blues, rock, soul, R&B, hip-hop, jazz, jazz fusion, uh, classical, uh, polka, uh, country, all sides of country, Americana. I mean, I, you know, I just love greatness. I mean, so I love and I look for greatness in music so I can enjoy myself at any style of music. You hear people walk around and say, I hate that kind of music. Dude, Earl Scruggs and Flats, Flats and Scruggs, I mean, these guys are incredible, like bluegrass players, but they're phenomenal. So you cannot turn your back on that. It's like saying, oh, yeah, I'm a hip-hop dancer, but I don't get this Barishnikov guy. You can't turn your back on greatness. So it's like LeBron saying, yeah, no paid man, and I'm not really into football. So I look for greatness, and I love all, all sorts of music because I find the commonality in the greatness of those players and those people. And are you equally as talented 
as spotting the music without the voice or the talent as you are with seeing the talent. Like, in other words, if I played you a song with no, you don't even know who wrote it. It could even just be on piano. Somebody just gives you a recording. Are you equally adept at saying, that's amazing, or that's not, as well as just seeing the person? Yeah, I mean, you know, through my history and background, as I say, I did it for myself, and then I did A&R for 16 years. We're going to talk about that, Columbia too. Columbia Records and uh, five and a half years at MCA Records. So that was the whole idea, A&R. you got to spot the talent, develop the talent, sign the talent, and make the record. So you got to pick these songs, find the hit songs. I mean, you talk to any record label president today, they're looking for hit songs. It's hard. It's a hard thing to do. That's why the name on everybody's mouth, I just sat with three record company presidents in the last couple of months, and the name on their lips every time was Max Martin. I said, God, you guys are just going to call Max Martin to death. I mean, he's on every record. But he is the greatest writer-producer of our time. I mean, the guy, he's just, he's got the Midas touch. Got it. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to do something unusual at this point, because I like to kind of get to know you before We're I We're going to stand up and dance. No, I'm not. Oh, man. I, I have the rhythm of a furnace. I don't. Uh... <laughs> rhythm of a furnace. <laughs> I got to use that. That was good, you guys. Rhythm of a furnace. <laughs> wow. Furnace rhythms. Wow. Wow. Not a fireplace, a furnace. You thought about this. I just want you to know I'm having much more fun than I can ever imagine. This is just so great. <laughs> hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Is I want to go way, way back. Oh, let's go mind. back. I like when you go to a show, especially like an R&B show, and they say, look, let us take you back. Well, let's go back. Why we got to go back? <laughs> what about the future, man? Barry, you're a future man. I am. Well, we're going to talk about Apple music in the future. <laughs> oh, oh, Apple's the future. Or the death of the future. Uh, okay, right. I thought <laughs> virtual reality was the future. VR is the future, you guys. All right. So take me back to what kind of neighborhood you grew up in and and what your family was like and the socioeconomic dynamic. But also the first thing that happened in your life where you said, I'm going to be in this business. I grew up in the hood, man, in the lovable hood in the South. And one of the great things about the hood is that the hood is definitely very creative. So there was a band. This is a this is an interesting story, right? 
Because this involves a guy that... Uh, Is there any other kind of story you tell? Well, no, no, no. I just thought about this in this moment because it was really... I, I, I can't... I haven't thought about this in a long time. So, see, so you're bringing this out of me. Barry's bringing the good out of me today, y'all. All right. Um, That's all I want. There was a band called Big Bo Melvin and the Nighthawks that would rehearse on this bass player's front porch. So the neighborhood, you hear music, you gather around. People are like, yo, where's that sound coming from? It's kind of dope, whatever. People gather around. So me, my brother, a bunch of us, our friends, we went like, oh, it's cool. This band's really good. So we listen to the band, and I go, wow, man, that band is cool. I mean, like an R&B kind of band. You know, the singer had to do rag with the process, too. You know, the whole little wretched pompadour kind of thing. Like, you know, like, yo, like, cool, right? At rehearsal. So that's the key. Practice. So at practice, he's looking like the part, right? Um, so we listen to the band. They're playing all the popular songs, all the cool James Brown, all the Motown, whatever. We're like, whoa, this is crazy. In the audience, there was a guy that I later found out whose name was Joe Tex, who had a song. He was an R&B guy. had a song called Skinny Legs and All about a woman about, well, well, whatever. I don't know. So anyway, he was in the audience. He later became a huge star. There was another guy in the audience that I met that day because I went up to the bass guy and I said, man, you guys are incredible. My God, this is phenomenal. I mean, I think I might want to play bass. Do you ever teach lessons? I said this to this guy, Sammy Thornton, who was the bass player, who was so beyond dope. I mean, for those of you that know music, it's like he was like the James Jameson of the South. James Jameson is probably one of the most decorated bass players in history, the, all the Motown records. There were many other bass players that were great too, Carol Kay and Joe Osborne, all those guys. But Jameson was all the Jackson stuff. I want you back. He was so dope, so incredible. This guy says to me, uh, "Yes, yeah, man. You know, you young bold man walking up, going to take lessons. You don't even play." And the guy next to him laughed, and he said, "Yeah, I think just for him being bold, you should definitely give him lessons, and I'm gonna make sure you stick to that because." I'm going to make him my little buddy, my little friend. That guy was Buddy Guy. So I wow. didn't even know who Buddy Guy was. So every time I see Buddy Guy to this day, he reminds me, he says, hey, man, remember you were like 12 or 13. I helped you get those lessons. I go, man, listen, I'm telling you, it was so funny. It was just I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, it was just the moment I was supposed to be in. Look for your moments out there. Where are you supposed to be right now? Probably listen to this podcast. No, it's true. You got to look for the moments. But instruments cost money. Yeah. Beg my mom. Finally bought me a guitar. I started taking a lessons bass from guitar. this a bass guitar. Started taking lessons from this guy. I also started playing regular guitar. My brother's a drummer. He was in a band. He was rehearsing my mom's garage. So I started playing a little drums. Uh, I got the bug about the saxophone because I was so in love with Cannonball Adley and John Coltrane, who's like just the mentor. I mean, I mean, my God, talk about musician. Talk about level of quality of talent. Oh, my God. I think he unsurpasses everyone uh, for me. Um, so I started playing sax. So I just kind of engulfed myself in music and sports. See, there's one of your heads on Mount Rushmore. 
Yeah, oh, yeah. Definitely Coltrane. There you go. So but then get, you got yeah. the whole Zeppelin band. I know. We got then you one. got a whole bunch of gospel artists. <laughs> we got two now. We got Coltrane, Zeppelin. Okay. Well, That's pretty good. We'll stay there for a That's second. That's pretty good. That's good. And you know something? In interviewing Judd Apatow, I said, when you're around people, you run into people, and you haven't put them in 20 of your movies. How do they... How do they feel when you think that way? And he says, well, sometimes they just realize, hey, these are brave people. Who are you going to take right. off the mountain? So you could be sitting next to anybody, and no one's going to take those people off the mountain. <laughs> so that's good. Okay, so keep going. So as you start playing, when do you make your first money doing it? You know, I did a bunch of talent shows. I had a bunch of bands I was in. I put together my first money, and I played in like a church for a minute. You know, like a Sunday service, I think we got 25 bucks. Me and this guitar player, we were like Hendrix freaks. So they gave you a percentage of the basket. <laughs> a very small percentage of the... No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, you know, I think my first real gig, um, you know, I worked and I practiced and I became the sponge. I listened to every piece of music. I learned every bass player's things. I went to every show I could. I practiced for hours every day, and I think I got pretty good. So I got, there was this guy that was kind of the southern version of the Beatles named John Fred and the Playboys. He had a song called Judy in Disguise. Uh, not Judy in Sky with Diamonds, Judy in Disguise. And he had a little regional hit with it. So I started playing with him, and through him, I met this woman, Irma Thomas. I played bass on this record, and I got paid my first check for playing bass on a record and then through him and a bunch of other people around town i started playing just local gigs and bars but i mean i was young i was underage but they sunk me in so what was the moment that happened where you said i'm never ever going to do any other job again but this uh i think that happened early on for me um I played my first bar. I was like, you know, snuck in. My parents didn't know I'd snuck in, but I was 15. So, and this was like a very like hood bar. There were like, you know, knife fights. People were shooting. We were hiding behind the amps. But the gig <laughs> like was Like an amp so, is going to stop yeah, a right, bullet. Right? Like an amp is going to stop a bullet. But where else are you going to go? You're on stage. So, uh, <laughs> yo, come on. Um I said to myself after the gig, so one of the older guys said to me, so man, this music's a little scary, huh? I said, yeah, man, but I'm telling you something. I had the time of my life tonight. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I, I just, I love it. I love it. I just love it. And then, and then, all throughout my career, you know, you get low points where you get depressed. You don't think it's going to happen. I was playing with Billy Cobham. We're playing at Berkeley School of Music. It's like jazz fusion drummer. He was in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. If you don't know Mahavishnu Orchestra, you should look it up. This guy's one of the world-renowned best drummers ever. And uh, we were playing at Berklee School of Music, and the show that we did was so phenomenal that all the students came up, all the kids. You know, you get those accolades and those warm, fuzzy feelings of people clapping and loving what you did that you go, wow, well, maybe I'm doing something right. I know I'm not making a lot of money, but somebody's hearing it. Cut to, I am on stage at Calaveras County Fairgrounds here, Northern California, with the Journey Boys, the J-Boys, we were called, playing our first show. And 
the audience of 110,000 people sang every lyric to every song. Every lyric to every song for two hours. I was like, wow, this is it. There's no greater feeling in the world to just hold a mic out and not even have to sing. Because somebody cared about your music so much, they learned every breath, every run, every note, every syllable of every word. And if you can create that kind of feeling in people. If you can create that where they care that much for what you do, you have made it. You don't have to worry about the money. You're going to get a lot of money. So cut to a couple years before that. And this was interesting for me because a couple years before that, when I moved to San Francisco, I was working with this guy, Nardo Michael Walden. We started a production company. We were doing records with Carl Carlton, Herbie Hancock, Sister Sledge. Uh, oh, ton of records. Our first big hit was on a girl named Stacy Lattisaw, who was 12 years old. She was signed to Atlantic Records, 12 years old. And uh, we'd done a bunch of records. We worked with Madonna. We did Freeway of Love, which brought Aretha back. We did a bunch of Aretha. We did all the first record we did with Whitney was How Will I Know, and that went on to we'd made many records with her. But the Stacey Lattisaw thing was interesting because she was about to do a tour. She was 12, and the label got her to open up for the Jacksons. Right. So I go back home to Baton Rouge, Louisiana to Doesn't see her. Michael and the group have Michael to Michael and the group were still together. Don't they have to approve the opening act? Yes. They love this little girl, 12, great singer. Love this little girl. She had a hit. You know, we were producing all the, making all the records with her. I go back to see her. I'm standing in the audience. The Jacksons do two and a half hours. Michael dancing and singing. No pro tools that you see now. People running tracks. These ridiculous people on stage not even singing at all. Like just mouthing the words and miming. Big artists on stage miming the words, not singing. Sang every word. Danced every step. Sweated every beat. The audience sang nonstop for two and a half hours. The hits just kept coming, kept coming. Probably one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my life, ever. I could not believe him as a performer, first of all. I mean, wow. Incredible. So cut to me five years later on a stage. I'm getting the same feeling about something I'm doing. I go, wow, this is it. Dude, I made it. This is like Woodstock. This is my version of Woodstock. Calaveras County Fairgrounds, dude. It was pretty crazy. It was pretty trippy. It was so good, man. Incredible. You know, they I say, still remember it. They say that every great artist has a hole blown through them. At some point in time, they lose their innocence. I'm right. not talking about your virginity. Or religion. It was a or good religion. song, Lose My Religion. That's it was a good right. song, R.E.M. But where something happens that is bone-crushing in your life that sort of focuses your energy towards something in artistry that makes you want to be great, what was the thing that happened to you that did that to you? 
I think the thing that really helped me is I was playing a lot of shows in Louisiana. I was doing everything. I was playing Jazz Fest since it started. You know, we had trios we'd put together. We had all these gigs at all these weird jazz clubs in New Orleans. We were doing all sorts of stuff. I, I got very blessed and very fortunate. I met Cannon, Cannonball Adley when I was a young kid and talked to him. And a lot of great people influenced me. I was influenced heavy by Stanley Clark and Chick Corea, which returned to forever. And as I said, you know, Miles Davis and Coltrane and all these guys. I think the one thing for me that really turned me around, I was playing all of these shows, right, all these bars. And there was one summer that I was just not happy with doing it because it wasn't the music I wanted to do. I felt like I wasn't progressing. I felt like I was just going around in a circle. It was June, middle of June, I quit this band I was playing with. I go, I'm gonna, for the next two months until I have to go back to school, 11th grade, I'm gonna practice eight hours a day. We're talking about practice, everybody. Eight hours a day. I'm going to go to my lessons. I'm going to learn everything I can. I'm going to learn the meaning of everything that I'm learning because it's one thing to learn it by road. Anybody can become a mimicker or a copycat. But to really learn the true or to try and find the meaning behind why did someone play that phrase, da da do 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 why did you play that against that C minor chord? Why did that work? Why did that chord give you that feeling? What was really going on? So I went as deep as I knew how to go. And I talked to a lot of people about solos, what they do, how they feel. So I gave, forced myself to get a higher understanding education of what I was doing. That tremendously helped me, and it helped me two years later, three years later, to get the Billy Cobham gig when I was in college because I auditioned with 50 other bass players. And I didn't really want it, but my girlfriend at the time said, well, you should check it out. You never know you might get it. That deeper understanding of the music um, really, really helped me. I must say that summer I still look back to and I go, wow, I don't know what was going on, but something told me to do it and I did it. What's fascinating is you go in to a process similar to American Idol on a mini scale where there's right. 50 people. They're sitting there with their arms folded. You're doing your thing, and you have no idea. And this is something for our audience as well. Think about this. Whenever you're doing anything, I don't care if you're interviewing for a job at a law firm or if you're trying to get into medical school or if you're a musician or a comedian or a magician or whatever it is, in order to get into the club or the affiliation when you're not doing something for yourself and you need to be a part of something, there's other people making the decisions. Of course. And you have no idea what the other people are like. You have no idea how good or bad they are, what improvisation skills they have. So you just have to go in and feel like, okay, what do I have to do to impress me, let me pretend I'm on the other side and I'm judging me and all these other 49 people unbiasedly and who would I pick? I was the idle kid. That's why it was great for me to be a judge. I was that kid. I think everybody that's made it was that person. And I'll tell you something that's funny. You say this. There was a, a teacher in college, Alvin Batiste, that became a family friend uh, that me and my brother played with, that all of us played with, that he was a genius jazz player. 
said to me once in college, it's the person that shows up at the right time with the right information, that's who's going to get the job. So if you're looking for a job, it's timing, and are you really ready? Can you show up with what they're looking for? Are you what they're looking for? Can you give them what they're looking for? Do you even know what you're looking for? Oh, now we've gone really deep on the podcast now. Oh, it's perfect. Do you know who you are first before you can offer yourself to someone? Whoa. That's that's part of the real issue today. No, it is. I think of, not to get personal, but when you have children, they find an interest and they go for it hard. And then sometimes they'll just stop doing it. Right. Like six months ago, my kids wanted to see a magic show. Take me to the magic apple. Got to learn magic. They're learning tricks. They're doing tricks that I don't even know how they're doing them. And then they're nine and 10 years old. And then that's gone. And then all of a sudden, Daddy, can I have a Rubik's Cube? This is this month. Can I have a Rubik's wow. Cube? That's a hard instrument, though, Rubik's Cube. Yeah, I'm like, I like well, it. I'm like, well, okay, you can have the Rubik's Cube if you want. But this is a tough thing. To, I've never learned how to do a Rubik's Cube. And I'm significantly older than you. Daddy, can I have the Rubik's Cube? Both of them have the Rubik's Cube. So I come home the other night. And my son, it's like I'm putting him in bed. It's like 930. He's crying in his room. I'm like, why are you crying? Daddy. I've been working on this for eight hours, and I just can't. I'm so close. Can you let me stay up longer? I'm like, look, why don't you take a fresh approach tomorrow? tomorrow morning? No, I got to do it. I've been working so hard, Daddy. I'm like, I am so proud of you because you know that you have to dedicate yourself to something. And even when you're getting the crap kicked out of you and it's not happening and you're not seeing anything happen that's progressing, you're learning about yourself and you're learning how to do it. And I can guarantee you that not only are you going to do this, but you're going to be setting records for yourself. This morning, he breaks out the Rubik's Cube and he says, time me, time him. He finishes the Rubik's Cube in under 60 seconds. Wow, let's hire that kid. <laughs> I like that. Rubik's so Cube I love, is hard. So, so I see that example. I think when I see my kids do it, I think people that work for me, and I think of the things they do and how they go and do things in the same in your business and what the trajectory has been in your career. It's amazing. Well, you can look at every actor. I mean, the whole entertainment business, you know, I think in life, you know, these things that, you know, it's good you're doing this podcast because, look, Tips that people can get from here works in every form of life. I don't care if you want to be a lawyer, doctor, insurance salesman, work at NASA, whatever it is. I think most things in life are relative when it comes to working in the job force. You got to put in the time. You got to be great. That's why it takes you so much time to become a doctor. They want to make sure before you start cutting on somebody, you know what you're really doing and you understand it. So, I mean, it, it takes a while. But what's incredible about you, which I think it should be noted. As many great people that I've talked to, and there's there's very few of them who can say this, but you're at the top of your game. I mean, you're working with some of the greatest artists in the history of the music business. And then you're like, eh, let me be an A&R guy. Well, this is like, you know, so the Randy Jackson plight is I'm a man of uh, evolution. I want to evolve. My favorite word in life is next. Okay, got that, got it, everybody's good, got it. What's next? So I hate Groundhog's Day, so I only like evolution. Evolution is paramount, because that means that you're constantly learning, growing, evolving. Very important. I don't wanna be the same place I was five years ago. 
So after being on the road with one of the greatest rock bands in the history of greatest bands journey and working with them and working on albums with them and doing all of that, uh, I was going through a transition time in my life where I needed to stay off the road for a while uh, to try and get myself healthy um, <laughs> in many ways. And uh, I decided I wanted to do something new and fresh. I wanted to try something. I mean, American Idol was a try. You know, I was getting burnout doing A&R. I mean, where the record business is today, I saw that happening 15 years ago. Uh, and I go, wow, this is this is going to get very interesting quickly. So, um, you know, I was ready to do something else. You know what I mean? At the time that I left Idol, I was ready to do something else. I mean, you know, you, um, I have to keep evolving and growing. That's 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 a big thing for me. I want to keep learning, keep experiencing new things. Do you mind? And please feel free to tell me no, because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast have had incredible setbacks, personal setbacks, because what happens is a lot of people feel like they never get to the place they want to get to. They know they're talented. They know they're great, but they can never put it together to get their career where they want to go. There's other people who start experiencing success, start gaining a little bit of a sense of entitlement, start enjoying the fruits of the labor. I always say the musician in the hot tub with the 17 nude girls and the Coke in one hand. And the Does blunt, that happen? And the blunt in another, you know. Whoa! Musicians are living the life. <laughs> he's not really living the life. What he's doing is he's celebrating the time, the free time he has from all the work he's put in. But what happens is sometimes you get into that lifestyle and it's hard to get out. Do you mind talking to the audience about how you got into a certain lifestyle from not being in it, and then how did you get out of it, and how did you overcome? I think, you know, look, it's, uh, uh, you know, in the South they call it living off the fat of the land, meaning that the land bore all this fruit and you eating all of it. <laughs> no, I mean, really what happens is I think you get in because it's part of the lifestyle. Everybody loves a party, and whether it's a rage, and you're at Coachella, you're at Bonnaroo, you're at whatever festival, whatever you're doing, everybody loves to have a good time. Well, you got to make sure that you're not caught up in the trappings of the good time, and it's only about a good time and no real work is being done. So, uh, you know, there's a thing called fantasy and reality. All the inebriants help to create fantasy, but the reality's still over here. And sometimes, and most of the times, the inebriance and all the fantasy takes you way away from the reality that you sometimes lose the reality or you lose a sense of touch with reality. So some of us that get strung out there have to get back to reality. So I think that's, that was a big thing for me. I mean, I think, you know, you got to make serious life changes. You got to make sure that you're not caught up in, you know, trying to run away from reality because, you know, you're also dealing with problem solving. So I think everyone should be, uh, find a therapist or find some friends that can be real with you all the time to let you know when you're going too far and you've gone too far to pull your coattail and say, yo, man, you need to reel it in. But you know, you say that, but I hope I'm not going too deep here, but you can be a sober artist and do a great show and be a single guy and there's 10 women 
yeah, you still lined get, up at the dressing room. But that's room. still the party. That's not fantasy. That's actually real life that's happening. And how do you handle that when you get out into the real side? But not- what you're doing, remember what you're doing. Anything in moderation is good. Anything you see anyone doing in excess, there's a serious deeper problem. So you're seeing them trying to self-medicate with the 40 women, with the 9,000 bottles or whatever they're doing. That's the self-medicating. So that's what I'm saying. Somebody has to really get in to sort of get to, so, Barry, what's really going on? I see the 40 chicks, but what's really happening, bro? So you know there's something deeper under there that really needs some adjustment or else this just continues to go on. Even the 40 chicks may seem like reality. It's fantasy, too. You're inspirational. I get that from you. I know that when you were at that point, there was somebody who was a voice who... Oh, I had I had many voices, many and voices. I kept, and I kept those people close, by the way. And they, Smartly. And thank they, God. And those people who <laughs> shall remain nameless helped you. Yeah. And in your career, I can imagine that there's probably been a multitude of times where you've gone to an artist or a person who wasn't an artist, an executive, and said, listen, this is enough is enough. You got to do something about this. Bro, I do it all the time. And you've changed their lives. Yeah, I do it all the time. You know I mean? I think that's like, you know, really paying it forward. And the funny thing about success, you have your real friends when you're trying to make it. As soon as you have success, we call it the so-called friends network. All of a sudden, while you're trying to make it, you got two or three friends. All of a sudden, you're successful. You got money. You're doing whatever. You got 100 friends. My God, you certainly got a lot of friends fast. So that's not really real. It's just a heightened sense of what's going on, and those people want to hang out and kind of glom on. But you have to be smart enough, you know what I mean? You have to be able to have a little bit of vision to say, like, I don't know. Uh, maybe the pretty rapper, maybe the insides are not as pretty. Okay, so you did the A&R stuff, and I don't want to spend too much time on that because I think that it's pretty obvious that you've discovered right. a number of different people and right. worked with different people, and, and you don't stay in an A&R job for eight years or five years or whatever it is. I think the first one was eight years or something. Nine years, yeah. Nine years. You don't stay in a job for nine years when you're doing a shitty job. No, that's definitely true, yeah. Here's the fascinating thing about Randy Jackson, everybody. Nine years A&R at one place alone, American Idol, 13 years. That's 22 years, two jobs. Look yourself in the mirror and see how long you've been working at your jobs. You can work that long at a place while you're taking a check from somebody. That's a miracle. Today especially. (laughs) So take me through the call you got for American Idol Did you have to screen test? I got a call from my agent who said, um, you know, Kyle, you know, Simon Fuller, you know, they want to meet. They really want to have you on this show. You know, I'd heard about the show over in England uh, because I was over in England and I'd seen a little bit of it. And they sent me some stuff and I said, well, do you want to come to a meeting? So we went to a meeting at Fox and then Kyle and I had a meeting because we were both A&R guys at the time. And uh, were you meeting with Mike Darnell, uh, Darnell, Mike Darnell, by the way, everybody was the head of reality at Fox. And now he's over at telepictures. Yeah. He's over at telepictures. Great guy, smart guy, 
um, visionary guy, you know, like he, he loves to push the envelope. I love that. You know, I love creative people that want to push the envelope. Um, cause they care about the ball moving further down the road as opposed to staying in the same place. Oh, as you know, and you've probably preached many times in your life. Yeah. The definition of a leader, somebody who takes risks. Of course you gotta, you gotta, you always gotta. So, uh, met with them, really liked them. They were talking about the thing. I go, yeah, well, let's see. So I sat with Kyle, we had lunch and we were laughing, telling in our stories and, uh, you know, we kind of got on like a house on fire. So that was like, we were like, yo, let's, let's, let's try and do this. Because I think all of us, that first season, you have to remember, this was a huge leap and a huge risk. And every network turned it down because they thought it wasn't going to work. Music on TV is never going to work. And me, I was like, yo, dude, like I'm in the music game. This is like my life. You know, I do some TV film stuff, but the music game is my life. So I don't want to be on some show that's going to make my whole thing corny, dude. Like, you can't, like, you know what I'm saying? Because there's a fine line between corniness and cool and greatness. So, you know, the whole thing about music, music, fashion, lifestyle, all goes hand in hand because we bring the flavor. We start the flavor. Don't spoil the flavor by some corniness on TV. Because, you know, TV can kind of do that. So I was really worried about that. I was like, yo, man, I don't know, man. Like, yo, this may spoil my whole game. Like, you know, so. So the first time you, you're there, you're an inspirational guy, you're huggable, you're lovable. And the first time you hear a really horrifying negative comment, let's say by Simon Cowell, where you're like, man, what have I done? I'm an inspirational guy. I well, that. I'd seen tapes of him, so I knew kind of what to expect. But it's one thing sitting there, and I'll never forget the first audition here in L.A. I mean, it was like, I think, the second kid in. <laughs> Paula Abdul jumped up. And she goes, what is this? This is crazy. I'm not doing this. Is that what we do? Ah, you know. So we all go backstage, and we're having this conversation. This is after Simon says something nasty. This is the second kid in in the whole thing, the second person. And it was like, so from then on, that first season was a tough, tough uh, adjustment period. And by the way, none of us knew if it was really going to work or not. We all just had a hunch and a feeling. But the thing about you is you're, I always say there's three kinds of people in the world. There's people who tread water, there's sharks, and there's really, really good swimmers. <laughs> and you're a great swimmer. And so you navigate with all these different people all the time, all these judges. I'm a band guy. I've been in bands. I'm a band guy. It wasn't just the Randy Jackson show. I was in bands. So when you're in a band guy, you learn to work as a team. That's what the government needs. These people need to be in bands first. But you learn to work as a team with certain people who don't want to work as a team. Of course. It's I always mean, that were, way in a there band. Were, there were seasons with people who shall remain nameless who I've known my whole life. <laughs> I know what they're like. So when they get the show, I'm thinking to myself, oh, boy, how is this going to work behind the scenes? America doesn't see what people see, no. but I see what people see. And well, you know you- you're in the game. You're in the business. You know. You really know. Well, after this interview, I'm out of the business. <laughs> no, no, no. So this is good. The show, amazing experience. I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you, so I'm just going to go with this. 
You've written a lot of books, I think two books, but all your stories compiled in every book and the ones that stay in your heart, you don't even have to mention names or you don't want to. Tell me the craziest thing that ever happened in your entire career on that show that you just can't believe, but it's documented somewhere, but it just struck you as like, this is my holy shit moment. I can't believe what just happened here. Well, on Idol, there were many of those. Uh, but what's coming to mind now is that kid Keith. We were in Atlanta. I think Paula was sick. She had food poisoning or something at lunch. So Colin and I said, well, look, we're going to get back started. We're going to get back started with the auditions because I don't know. There were like 70 kids at that. So we sit there. <laughs> His kid comes in. He was the strangest guy I think I'd ever seen in the strangest audition. And I don't know if they ever showed this on TV. There was a guy on a ladder behind us, one of the lighting guys. I think he was holding the boom mic. So Colin and I were sitting here. <laughs> this guy was singing. And I was looking at the floor, thinking of everything I could, not just laughing at the guy's face because, you know, it's not really nice, but sometimes you can't help it. So midway through, this guy falls off the thing in the background. <laughs> off the ladder. He, off the ladder. He's dying. <laughs> we go, whoa. The kid was so weird and incredibly bad that we were like, what in the hell is going on? And I was like, man, what are we doing with this show, man? Why, why is this happening to me? (laughs) It was so bizarre that I just, and you know, it makes you stop and think. You go like, wow. Okay. (laughs) He was so, I mean, nicest kid, Keith. He was a nice kid, but wow. I mean, and kind of, I, I don't know, just, it was just so strange. Now, Pretend you're the executive producer of your own reality show, which you were. Right. But another one, a new one. And pretend like you can put three judges, any three judges from any panel that's ever been on television or any personality that's never even been a judge before. Tell me who your dream three would be that if you were casting them on a new show, like a talent show, could be anything music or whatever it is just people who move the needle on that panel and you can't say yourself who would you draft number one number two and number three and they could be from any show uh i gotta say for me because we didn't know it nobody knew it and we didn't know it i'll say that again the stroke of genius and the blessings of god most high helped us tremendously me, Simon, Ryan, and Paula will be the best ever on any of these shows because it wasn't selected and planned and edged so much. We, that first season, was going, well, who can we get? We don't know what we're doing. We're going in blind. Now what I see on TV, and it's hard for me to watch these shows, I see people just trying to copy the natural chemistry that we had, trying to copy it on every show trying to be funny, trying to be mean like Kyle, trying to not be mean like me. Try, I mean, it just, I, it, it's, it's, you know, but once again, only want to lead. So it makes me feel proud because to see the others follow is great. So there's a judge on one of those shows right now who used to call me all the time doing Idol. 
He was like, bro, this is the greatest thing in the world. You guys are killing me, man. This is the greatest thing in the world. You know, like, and he was saying that because we didn't know what was going to happen. So naturally, this happened to us. It wasn't planned. Maybe somebody had a plan, but they didn't know if it was going to all work out. I'm always fascinated when somebody comes on a show Judges come on shows, and it rarely works in the middle. Oh, this guy's coming on. Right. This guy's coming on. Or in the beginning, you know, what they forget about your first year is there was another person on your panel, Brian Dunkelman. <laughs> you know, people forget about that. There was a comedian on the show Brian! before that for uh, one funny. season. He yes. was on again for obvious reasons. But when normally when you add a judge, never works. There's only one time I've known it to really work where – it just takes over the whole thing, and that's Howard. Well, Howard's a diff- but Howard's a different casting, though. And Howard was a smart casting. Uh, Howard's probably one of my favorite of the judges that are on now. Um, but he's a smart casting because he's an incredibly smart guy, very quick, and he sees the whole thing as it walks in the door. He's... He's kind of like me and Kyle in a weird sort of way. He's probably more like Kyle because he's a little caustic like that. But he's uh, Howard's Howard. Howard does his thing. He's a really good one. What I love about Howard. Yes. Is he takes me back to one of my favorite shows growing up. The gong show. See, he takes me back to there. So he works perfectly on Got Talent to me. Perfectly. Yeah, well, I think it's always fascinating when somebody changes their style. I mean, here's a guy who, and this isn't an interview about Howard Stern, but I'm mentioning him because you've been on his show a number of different times and you talk to him a number of different times and your interviews and your things with him are always great. You guys have a great chemistry. Oh, yeah, he's funny as hell. But, I mean, for him to do what he's done, he's reinventing things. And it's like you said before, I think of you because you're constantly said, I don't want to be where I was five years ago. So he's interviewing people long for him. He's doing this show. You know, he's doing different things. He's an entrepreneur, and that's what you're doing with all the things you're doing. So six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name of somebody and just anything that comes to your mind, okay? And it's a long list, and if you could want to pass, like a match game. Yeah, just to go pass. All right. Whitney Houston. One of the greatest ever. Billy Joel. Another one of the greats ever and a funny guy. The best guy to be in a bar with. Carlos Santana. Wow. One of the biggest geniuses ever to touch the guitar. Really deep, soulful guy. Journey. In my opinion, one of the greatest rock bands ever. So blessed to have been a part. Awesome. Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> One of the funniest people I've ever met. She's so quick. Um, she's my homegirl from Louisiana. I love her dearly. Awesome. Michael Jackson. Wow. Probably the greatest entertainer ever, I think. Smokey Robinson. Wow. One of the true leaders in our industry has shown the way for many people. Him and Barry starting Motown back in those days, the stories the wisdom he's helping taught me. He thanks me, but I thank him. Bruce Springsteen. Oh. <laughs> my my heart and soul, he's what you see is what you get is what it is. He, after Michael Jackson, 
probably one of the greatest performers as well. I saw him just recently perform for three hours to a sold-out crowd, 18,500 people. Jimmy Iovine and I brought T.I. and his wife to the show. Bruce didn't change clothes. He sweated. He performed. People sang every song. I mean, God, if there's anybody I really want to be like, I want to be like him. Apple Music, the new new apple music what's going to happen what's your opinion uh god bless my boy rob kondrick who's one of the founders and jimmy and all those guys i think they're doing a great thing i think the streaming service is going to take off i think they're the last big giant to really go for it i think it's the future i think we're the future of the world is streaming i mean they have the power they got the bandwidth uh they're going to make it different i predict ginormous success you know what i predict this is weird, and I could be wrong. We all know what happened with Beats Music. So I always feel like yeah, I look across your mirror, and these things channel through me. Right. If you're going to be great, you have to be doing something that no one else is doing. Right. So what is it that Apple Music is really doing that nobody else is doing? What is it that they're doing? Charging you for music after three months of being free? So in my mind... It concerns me, this particular initiative, because the whole basis of Steve Jobs and the whole company, and everybody out there knows this, you create a product that no one else has or no one else has the functionality of it. You put a phone with your fingerprint in it. Now, granted, that technically has nothing to do with how the phone works for you, but it's a thing that they did that changed how people thought about things that were like, wow, this is like, I'm going into the future. I have to have this phone. What is it about Apple Music, in my opinion, that says, hey, I want to sign up, and after the, my three months free, I want to get it. What, the free internet radio station? Well, the thing is, is that they're going to do it better because they have probably, arguably, 500, 600 million credit card subscribers, buyers already. They're the biggest buying portal for buying music. 500 or 600 million credit cards. Spotify ain't got that. Tidal ain't got that. Pandora. Remember, you were buying on there. So now you're going to stream for $10 after being free for three months. You're going to stream. You were buying on there buck twenty nine a song. All right, so you're signing up. You were buying. You were giving me more money. Now I'm giving you a freebie. They will win. All right. I'm saying you were buying. All right. You gave me a trillion dollars. I'm offering you for $10. <laughs> I love it. Okay. My final three questions. Go. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you took that bone-crushing disappointment and turned it into something positive? Uh, biggest disappointment, I think, you know, happens to me because, you know, as a manager, I manage a lot of artists, one of the other hats that I wear. When you pour a lot into artists and they don't quite work and they look like they're going to work and you do everything you can personally and they don't work, you look at yourself and say, well, could I have done more? What could I have done? But what you remind yourself of, you're not the artist. You're only the manager. You can't do it for them. They have to do it, and they've got to do their part. 
and maybe they weren't ready yet and the timing just didn't work out. So I always try and look at every failure in a positive sort of way because remember, the person that shows up at the right time with the right information gets the job and the sale. So maybe the time wasn't right, maybe the approach was wrong, and maybe they weren't right. Don't know. That was a NASCAR award show. I like of, NASCAR. Of all things, talking grew up to you on NASCAR. and talking about NASCAR. And the award show is happening, and the host, which was Jay Moore, he thanked the team that the winner that year had been with for 12 or 13 years. And after 13 years, they said to themselves, listen, this guy hasn't won a race yet. We put all this money into him. We're going to let his contract go. He goes to another company. And he wins the NASCAR championship for the first time. Do you worry when you manage an artist that you put all your effort in, you do it, it doesn't happen, you guys part ways, and then a year later something happens where they... I never worry about what happens after. I try and go in with a very informed decision. And I'm very non-egotistical about it. Am I the right one for this artist? Can I do this too? I understand what this needs. I used to do A&R the same way. Somebody else should sign this artist. This is not what I do. I understand it, but I don't really understand it. I'm not the one. So you always have to be honest with yourself, I feel, if you feel you're the best one for that job. So if I don't get it and go to somebody else and they get it, big props. It's happened before to me many times. Your proudest moment in show business. God, I don't know about the proudest moment in show business, but we've been doing so much idle talk. I think when we're at the end of that first season and Kelly won, I think we all knew we had something that could be huge. I think that's when it finally dawned on us and definitely the end of the second season with Clay and Ruben. I think we were all like, wow, this thing can just leap all bounds. I loved Kelly Clarkson's audition because, again, you talk about risk. And if you ever get a chance to watch it on YouTube, I don't want to spoil it, but she did things that no one else did in an audition. She took risks with people she didn't know. And it wasn't just about the singing. It was about the personality and being a leader. Well, but that's what I'm saying. Stars are born. The star has to walk in the room. You can help to nurture it, but it has to be born. Michael Jackson was born with that voice. Elvis was born with that swagger. You don't have to give it to him. So when you have to go and give it to an artist and no, do this, no, move like that. Can you move? Oh, man, you're in trouble. Final question. What advice do you have for the young artist who's growing up in the projects in a place like Baton Rouge, Louisiana, <laughs> and what it's going to take for them to get through and navigate through to have the kind of career that you have? And what advice do you have for the executive, the person on the other side of the business, of how they can navigate and get to a position where they're holding down a job at a company for nine years and making a difference and then moving through the ranks and becoming one of the greatest entrepreneurs as you are that I know. Well, remember, everything in life is relative, I feel. So for that would-be artist that's growing up in any hood, anywhere, it doesn't have to be Baton Rouge, it could be there, it could be anywhere or any great home somewhere that has money, whatever, any executive, you got to really find out what you're really, truly passionate about. And most importantly, find out what you're really, really 
best at. You may think or people may say you should be a model. Some may say you have a face for radio. (laughs) They say that about me. No. So you got to really find out what you're really, really good at. And that's your thing in this life to lead you through. Polish that, buff that, find out as much information about it. Become, I mean, an entrepreneur of knowing what you're best at. Follow that. That'll lead you to other things. You need, there's one thing that you have that is better than anyone else's. It's something that you do. It may not be what you want to do, but as a great man said to me once, what you need to do is what you need to listen to. It's not what we want. What do we need? What do you need? Do you have to do this? Not do I want to do this. I want to be an astronaut. I'm not. Do you? I don't need to be an astronaut, but I need music. Soul salvation music. You know, the reason why I'm staring at you, because I'm just in awe of this, and all I can think of after you finished was, you are definitely in it to win it. Ah, a great man said that phrase. That's a good phrase, brother. Thank you. This has been amazing. You are unbelievable. This is like and so great. I'm no, so this is fun, man. Do you have fun? Oh, this I always have fun. Have you ever you done gotta it? have fun. I hope I made the cut. No, dude, you did it. All you right. won. And I just Barry's wanna, in it to win it. And I just want to give you a plug here because you just signed an overall deal with End Them All Shine, one of the biggest production companies in the world, to do uh, reality and script and all different kinds of things. Another of the 17 things you're into, and I know we're gonna look for great things. Thank you so much. Randy Jackson. Thank you for having me, brother. We're going to have fun, man. Come on, y'all. Friends. I think you should call the show Holding It Down with Barry Katz. <laughs> oh, no. I'm about to hold these things down. I wish I could hold it down. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.